We the people. Four score and I seven. have a dream. Ask what you tear down this wall. Which will live in infamy. Read my lips. Presidents to pundits, Congress to controversies, Republicans to Democrats. If it covers in politics, then we will cover it. I'm Wynn Harris, and this is Civic Symphony. In this episode, we're going to finish our study of state flags of the United States, and also we're going to answer some questions from emails that we have received. But as always, we start with what is occurring today in politics. The state of Nevada has decided to move their primary elections for the 2024 political season uh, up near Iowa and New Hampshire's dates. Uh, the reason given for this is that they felt like that the Nevada has a much more racially diverse and racially reflective uh, population than does Iowa and New Hampshire, who are predominantly white. And so, therefore, they felt like a, a move was needed to reflect this type of diverse population early on in the political cycle of the 2024 vote. Now, it's interesting in that uh, this move will cause some type of reaction from New Hampshire and Iowa. Uh, New Hampshire and Iowa have always been the bellwether states. They have always been the, quote, third rail. If you can get through uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, then the odds of you becoming the nominee for president are, are much stronger. Um, those of you that rem will remember that Joe Biden did not do very well in Iowa and New Hampshire, but his comeback occurred in South Carolina. So this is a move by the legislature and the governor of Nevada to, to move up their date to make that state's uh, vote much more important. Um, there's a couple of questions that also come from this. N number one, um, do other states start to do this? Uh, obviously, if Nevada can move theirs up, does an Oklahoma move theirs up, or does a North Carolina move theirs up, that type of thing, to create almost a, a super Tuesday early on in the um, political landscape of 2024. It's important to point out this is not 2022. It doesn't take effect of 20 and 24. And secondly, do the political candidates buy into this move? Um, do they buy into the fact that, OK, now we got to go to out to Nevada and secure those votes like we had to do in Iowa and in New Hampshire? So obviously uh, this this will drastically shift the the landscape that is the uh, run for president in 2024. Now, to be honest, I think before it's over, you will see some type of, of legal legal action uh, from either New Hampshire or Iowa. Uh, or the fact that they'll simply move their dates. The, the problem is by moving, by Nevada moving their date up to February, you're running out of days uh, in, in January and February to, to put a new primary vote into if you're another state. So it's just an interesting development. Uh, we'll see what comes of it as time goes on. Okay, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is back in the news this week, but what's interesting is she's in the news for a stance she's taking concerning a chief justice. Now, if you remember our last episode, we talked about how the Supreme Court operated. We talked about how the Supreme Court was, was set up. And this past week, uh, Representative Cortez suggested that it was time for Justice Stephen Breyer to step down, to retire as Supreme Court uh, Justice. Uh, and she was asked about it, and this is what she said. Well, you know, I believe, um, I believe Representative Jones has a point, and we have had 
very difficult experiences with making, I believe, the opposite mistake. And um, especially if Senate Democrats are not going to pass reforms on H.R. 1, we cannot rely solely on, on a wish of winning elections, um, particularly in the Senate, uh, when voting rights are under attack in Georgia, Arizona, um, and, and Texas, across the country. And if we're not going to pass H.R. 1 with the preemptive clauses that can roll some of that uh, voter suppression attacks back, yeah, I believe that we should protect our Supreme Court, and I thought that should absolutely be a consideration. So now this is one of the major reasons that the founders protected the Supreme Court and protected judges. They did not want it to become political, which is exactly what is occurring here with Representative Cortez. This is why the founders get, made sure that the position was not elected and that it had no term limits, for lack of a better word, you, you serve for life. Because they, they understood very quickly that this type of position, being a Supreme Court judge, uh, would be controversial and that it would always be open to political action. And what Ms. Cortez is basically saying is, well, we're, if we don't get what we want, if we don't get House, uh, the measure passed on the For the People Act, if we don't get the correct rulings on abortion, if we don't get the correct rulings on health care, then maybe it's time for this judge to, to be removed. In addition, the, the reason this has come up is because of Stephen Breyer's age, he's 82, and the fact that the Democrats would like to have another liberal judge in that position, a much younger liberal judge in that position that could serve another 20 or 30 years. But again, the founders did not want these positions to be influenced politically. They wanted to insulate the Supreme Court judges from the other two branches of office to make sure that politics did not play any type of role in the way they ruled on cases and in the decisions they made and in the way that the Constitution was interpreted. They wanted that protection granted to those judges. Now, when she was pushed on her answer, Representative Cortez basically finally said, yes, he does need to go. And this is what that sounded like. Um, you know, I, 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 it's something I, I think about, but I, I would probably lean towards yes. Um, but yes, you're asking, you're asking me this question, so I would just, I would give more thought to it, but, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm inclined to say yes. Now, first of all, if, if I'm a representative the House of, a member of the House of Representatives, I might want to give more thought to an answer before I give the answer. Um, but, but needless to say, she obviously would like him to be to retire to open up that position. Now, here's the problem, and again, here's the beauty of the Constitution, and here's the beauty of the mind of the, of the founders. She has no political power at all. Not in this case. There's no political leverage. Stephen Breyer, as a justice, can sit there as long as he wants. And again, we've talked about this. We talked about it the last episode. Um, there's only two ways that a Supreme Court justice leaves. He either or she either dies in their position or they retire. Now, somebody goes, well, yeah, you can you can impeach a, a, a justice of the Supreme Court. That is true. You can impeach a justice of the Supreme Court. He has done nothing that is impeachable. So as angry as the Democrats get at him, as upset as they may be about his rulings, as upset as they may be about the fact that he will not leave, he doesn't have 
to leave. There's no political mechanism. There's no constitutional mechanism that can be used to make him give up his seat on the Supreme Court. So while there may be some political push, all Stephen Breyer has to do is sit there and go, I'm not going anywhere and I will only leave when I am ready to leave. And there have been some Supreme Court justices that have taken that position. So he can simply sit back and do the job to the best of his ability or what he believes is the best of his ability and make the rulings in a way that he feels are constitutional. All right, another big event going on this week is the opening or the beginning of the election for a new mayor of New York. The the uh, early voting is already taking place. And there's two names that are really coming out of this uh, election process. One of them is Eric Adams, who right now apparently has the lead. And the other one is a lady that was supported by uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and that's Maya Wiley. Now, so a lot of this race uh, is going to be determined upon the candidate's stance when it comes to violence, to crime in New York. Uh, New York has seen a surge lately of crime. Uh, grand larceny is up 66%. Robbery is up 28%. And shooting incidents, not deaths, but shooting incidents are up a whopping 166%. So a lot of the focus in the campaign is going to occur around how the candidates are going to handle crime. Now, this is where Miss Wiley got into a little bit of controversy because when she was asked the specific question of would she take away guns from the police, this is the answer that she gave. Will you take we, the guns away from the NYPD? I am not prepared to make that decision in a debate. I am going to have a civilian commissioner and a civilian commission that is going to hold the police accountable and make sure we're safe from crime, but also from police violence. Now, that one answer may have cost Ma Wiley the, the mayorship of New York. You, you can't not have a society, you cannot have a city, a country, that cannot protect its citizens. That, that's the number one job of any government is to one, protect the citizens that make up the city, the county, the nation, whatever. And secondly, to make sure that government protects its citizens from the government itself. And so here's a candidate that's standing up saying that she's not sure whether or not she would take guns away from police. Now to be fair, let me clarify this, that the next day she came out with a statement saying that, that that was just ridiculous. No one has ever talked about taking guns away from police. Um, that, that is not part of her political campaign. However, you will hear some liberals talk about in other countries they have taken guns away from police. Um, but but a, a warning here also, and we haven't really got into this. Don't ever take the culture of the laws of another country and try and put them into the United States or, or any other different country. Laws are a reflection of the culture of the citizens that make up a country. And, and therefore, since every culture is different, laws are different and how the laws work are different. So this one answer, however, may have cost her becoming mayor of New York. We're going to take a break. As we go to break, we're going to hear one of Maya Wiley's uh, television, com television commercials. 
uh, radio commercials, I'm sorry, in New York. And then coming back out of break, I will play an Eric Adams commercial to give you a feeling of the two different type of campaigns that are being run. We'll be back. As mayor, Maya Wiley would fight for frontline workers. What healthcare workers do is more than just a job. It's a calling to heal the city. And every New Yorker in our care. Maya knows how to win our uphill battles. For better jobs and safer communities. Maya will make sure that our economy works for all of us. New York needs a mayor. Who will fight for us every day. That's Maya Wiley. Vote Maya for mayor. Paid for by 1199 for Maya. have seen rough times, and I've got the calluses to prove it. Growing up, my parents struggled. I was beaten by police at 15, so I became a police officer to battle racism from within. As Brooklyn Ball president, I worked around the clock to fight against COVID. I'm Eric Adams. I'll be a blue-collar mayor. I'll rebuild our economy while tackling violent crime and bring New York back. Paid for by Eric Adams 2021. So now some Democrats are finally starting to lose their patience with Joe Manchin of West Virginia. In fact, Jamal Bowman of New York went so far as to call him the new Mitch McConnell. Joe Manchin has become the new Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, during Obama's presidency, said he would do everything in his power to stop Obama. He's also repeated that now during the Biden presidency by saying he would do everything in his power to stop President Biden. And now Joe Manchin is doing everything in his power to stop democracy and to stop our work for the people, the work that the people sent us here to do. Let me tell you the basic problem occurring within the Democratic Party is that there are people that are making political arguments to Joe Manchin who is holding a principled position. Joe Manchin doesn't believe that the filibuster needs to be done away with. He doesn't believe that bipartisanship is dead. So if you're going to win an argument with him, you have to argue on principle, not politics. He is not looking for a committee seat. He is not trying to get something for West Virginia. This isn't about a pork barrel project. This is about his own personal beliefs. And if you're going to win an argument with him, then you have to argue principle on principle. You must convince him that the filibuster is dead, that it has no point anymore in the U.S. Senate. You must convince him that the only way you're going to get things done in modern politics is you vote among party lines all the time without any discussion with the other party. And until you can win those type of arguments with him, not political arguments, but principled arguments, until you can win those type of arguments, he is not going to change his position. And just like Stephen Breyer, who we talked about earlier in this podcast, there's no political mechanism to make him change his position. There's no amount of pressure you can put on him. He was just reelected from West Virginia, so he's not going anywhere. 
So there, in, you can't impeach him. You can't call for a recall. There's no kind of political pressure you can put on him to make him change his mind. So the only way you're going to make him change your mind is not with a political argument, but it's with a principle argument. Joe Biden is on his way to speak to Vladimir Putin in a summit meeting to talk about the problems that exist between the United States and Russia. Now, as he was asked to comment concerning visiting Vladimir Putin, he made some very interesting comments. And I feel like in a lot of ways he is misjudging Vladimir Putin and his intent, Putin's intent, on this summit between the two leaders. We're not looking for conflict. We are looking to resolve those actions which we think are inconsistent with international norms, number one. Number two, where we can work together, we may be able to do that in terms of some strategic doctrine that, that may be able to be worked together. We're ready to do it. And there may be other areas. There's even talk there may be an ability to work together on climate. So here's the miscalculation. Vladimir Putin loves conflict. It's what he lives for. If you look at his personality, if you look at his policies, his political maneuvers, he is all about conflict. And so to go on with the idea of we're not looking for conflict, you've already given away the whole battle. Because, again, Vladimir Putin wants the conflict. He wants to show that Russia is the superior nation. He has done this with military moves in the Ukraine. He has done this with other political maneuvers that have propelled Russia further and further up in world standing. And, excuse me, and quite frankly, Vladimir Putin is not worried about NATO at all. He wasn't worried when they threw Russia out of the G7. This is a man who likes the conflict. It's part of his personality. It's part of what makes Vladimir Putin Vladimir Putin. If you don't know, he was formerly KGB. So he is all about the fight. He is all about the intimidation. And to go in with the idea that, oh, there's not going to be any conflict. We're not looking for conflict. We're all going to pick daisies and sing songs and have a good day. Then, then you've lost the battle immediately because Vladimir Putin wants the conflict and he wants to show that he is better and that his country is better than anyone else on the earth. And he will take any advantage he can to do that. And so this is where I think Joe Biden has already made his miscalculation. You've got to go in prepared for a fist fight. Uh, and it, again, it doesn't help to have NATO behind you because Vladimir Putin could care less about what NATO is going to do or not do to him. Please remember, he's in charge of the largest country on Earth. So it, it's not like he's worried about land size and he's not worried about what all the European nations together are going to do to him. He looks forward to that battle. He looks forward to that struggle. And you got to go with the mindset that that's what he's about. And you got to push back as hard as you can, especially in the first meeting, because if you don't, then that sets the tone for the next four years. Because here's what you also need to understand. Vladimir Putin's going to be there. He will manipulate the system in some way that he stays in charge. And what he knows is the ace in the pocket is that there's a chance that the president he's dealing with now will not be the president in four years. And he gets to reset the whole uh, dynamic, the whole situation all over again. 
When we come back, we're going to talk about the central issue in this episode, which is our continuing study of state flags. If you have a question about a subject or a comment about a segment we did, or you just like to give a suggestion for future episodes, feel free to contact us at civicsymphony at gmail.com. Civicsymphony at gmail.com. From the halls of Congress to the smallest state house, covering it all, this is Civic Symphony. Now, if you weren't with us when we started our study of state flags, there's a couple things that we need to clear up before we get going. First of all, there's no way we could cover all 50 state flags in two episodes. So we've kind of picked ones that are unique or that do a really good job of representing the state uh, and the culture of that state. Secondly, there's a lot of state flags which are blue with state seals on them. We've kind of tried to avoid those. Again, we were looking for ones that that were unique in some way uh, based upon color, based upon uh, the symbols on them. Now, that doesn't mean that the, the flags that use seals on them are not unique because typically those seals represent the state. But when we were doing this, we just thought we'd pick ones that weren't necessarily blue with the state seal on it. And finally, a lot or, or several state flags have animals on them. A lot of those animals are eagles, obviously representing the United States. So we've tried to make a distinction when there's a state flag that has an animal on it that is not an eagle. Having said all that, let's begin. So let's start with Oregon. Now, Oregon is unique when it comes to state flags. It is the only state flag that has two sides to it. Um, it, is, it has a blue background to it, and then everything is in yellow on the flag. But on one side of the flag, it has the state seal. And then on the other side of the flag, it has a beaver. Now, this also makes Oregon somewhat unique in that it does have an animal on its flag, but, but it is not an eagle. So Oregon distinction comes from the fact that it is the only two-sided flag in the United States. Right up from Oregon, we get the state of Washington. Now, Washington, the old joke about Washington's flag is it is the dollar bill flag in the fact that it is very similar to the United States $1 bill. But it also is unique in several ways. If, if you ever look, first of all, if you ever look at the Washington state flag, it has a picture of George Washington, and then on it says the, the seal of the state of Washington. But it is unique in this manner. It is the only state flag that is green, and it also is the only state flag that has a picture of the president on it. Um, now, originally, it was not green, and it did not have a picture of the president in the sense that it, it is today with Washington, again, looking at you. Originally, um, when the first 
flag uh, or state flag of Washington when it was uh, right before its admission to the Union. They had a blue flag and they did have Washington on it. It was a profile of Washington in gold. So it is unique in the fact that it is green and, and the fact that that stands out from all the other state flags, which are which are typically uh, blue in, in background. All right, Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming is kind of different in that it, it does have a blue background. However, it is trimmed with white and then red. It does have the state seal on it, but in Wyoming's case, they put the state seal in inside the outline of, of a buffalo, obviously one of the most important animals in uh, Wyoming. Uh, again, here's a case where you have an animal on a flag that is not an eagle. Um, now, the interesting thing behind Wyoming is this. Um, the flag was created or designed in 1916 um, through a competition that was organized by the Dollars of the American Revolution, and the winning entry received $20 for their work. So, uh, and, and there's several other flags that had, had been designed in a competition sponsored by the Dollars of the American Revolution. So, um, but Wyoming is kind of unique in that, yeah, it has a state seal on it. It's blue, but the state seal sits inside of, of an animal. Now, let's talk about two of the most, or arguably, two of the most recognizable flags uh, in the United States when it comes to state flags. Um, the first one is South Carolina. Now, the South Carolina flag goes goes way back, traces its roots, believe it or not, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Um, originally, uh, Colonel William Moultrie created what was known as the Liberty Flag, and it was a blue flag. There's that common thread, a blue flag, and then up in the corner was a crescent moon, and inside of the crescent moon was the word Liberty. Um, the fact it was blue came from the, the soldiers that he was in command of who wore blue uniforms. Um, then in 1861, they added the palmetto uh, tree, which is what you see today is the blue background with the white crescent moon and the, and the white palmetto. Um, originally, the first design had the, the white crescent in, in a, uh, a blue square um, up in the corner, and then it had a green tree on a white flag. Uh, that was later changed to what you see today. Like I said, is is blue with the, the white crescent and the white palm tree. Um, now, a little kind of historical uh, trip here. Um, South Carolina also had what is a cousin or brother, or however you want to say it, to the Gadsden flag. Now, if you go back to when we covered uh, American flags, the Gadsden flag is the one that it is yellow and has the curled up snake and says, don't tread on me below it. The South Carolina version was a naval flag that, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, it was actually uh, red and blue and the snake was uh, slithering across the flag. And then at the top, it said, don't tread on me. So a lot of people will tell you that's the cousin or that's the brother to the Gadsden flag. But that flag was song, uh, was flown uh, by the, the Navy of South Carolina early in the Revolutionary War. Now on to a flag that most people will recognize. Uh, it has been called uh, probably the single most recognized state flag in the United States, and that belongs to Texas. 
Now, the Texas flag, well, first of all, let's describe it. Uh, it has one one quarter of it is, is blue with a big white star, and then the rest of the flag is divided between white and red. Um, its history runs something this way. Originally, uh, Texas, the, the territory we know as Texas, was part of two states inside of Mexico. So there was a two-star flag. When Texas broke away and became a republic and then further on a state, it dropped the two stars and ended up with the one star, which it has today, um, and thus the term the Lone Star State. So um, it's, its history is very rich in, in the fact that it was a republic long before uh, it became a state, but it was also a, a state in, in Mexico. And then, like I said, it broke away. Um, again, you can argue it is the most recognized state flag in the United States. Uh, part of it is because of the population of Texas, and part of it is because it has simply been used so often in so many different ways. Um, again, we talked about this in, in our Creating States episode. There's always been some talk of busting uh, Texas into four parts because it's big enough to do that. And there's always been a pushback and a lot of people debate, OK, would, would you have to change the, you know, the flag? Because obviously now it's only one star representing the whole state. Uh, but rest assured, that's probably never going to happen. Texans like the fact that Texas is so, so big. New Mexico, we're going to talk about two of the, uh, I guess, Native American flags and their origin are, are Native American. They, the, the creation of the flag was heavily influenced by Native American culture, tradition. New Mexico is, some people say, the single most beautiful flag. It is simplistic, yet has a lot of representation to it. If, if you don't know New Mexico flag, it is yellow. It is one of the four flags that has no blue in it, along with Alabama, California, and Maryland. It is a yellow flag. And then in the middle uh, is, the, is a red sun uh, symbol. Now, that is from the Zias people. Um, but what's interesting about it is, yes, it's the sun, but the middle of it is a circle. And what that represents is the, the idea of the Zia people's circle of life. So it's it's the idea that, that you know the the sun shining, but there's also this concept of everything is, is circular. Everything's a part of life, and so it is very simplistic. It is e easily recognizable, and again, some people state flags will tell you it is the single most beautiful flag of, of all of the fifty states. Now, another uh, state that had a lot of um, influence from their Native American population is Oklahoma. Um, it's the the OJ shield uh, is on a blue background, um, but there's two things on top of the shield. One is a ceremony. I'm sorry, ceremonial pipe that was supposed to represent or does represent Native Americans. And then there's an olive branch crossing that, and that is for the European settlers who helped to obviously settle. Um, the Oklahoma Territory. Now there are also six golden, uh, brown, I'm sorry, six golden brown crosses. Um, that is Native American, and they represent stars. Um, the blue background is from the Choctaw flag, and that was adopted by the tribe in 1860, and then it carried all the way through um, the Civil War. So the, the Oklahoma flag has a lot of Native American influence, and the idea was to combine that with the settlers. I thought they've done a great job. It makes it very unique of the 50 flags and does do a good job of reflecting their culture. And as we've talked about before on this show, if you're going to do a state flag, have it reflect the culture of the state.
Okay, a couple more real quick. Uh, the Tennessee state flag is a red flag. In the middle is a, a, a blue circle with a white border around it and then three stars. Um, and the, the three stars represent the three different parts, the two, three different regions of Tennessee, uh, the eastern, the middle, and western regions. What's kind of unique about the Tennessee flag is at the end, there's a, a small white stripe and then, a, and then a blue stripe. They mean absolutely nothing. They were simply put on there for for aesthetic effects to make the flag just to have a little difference to it instead of just a giant red flag. So they are simply there for the fact that, that they're there. And finally, let's talk about the, the Virgin Islands, one of the territorial flags. Um, it's it, the Virgin Islands has a uh, eagle. Well, once again, eagle uh, on a flag. It's a white flag. On top of the eagle is a shield. And then beside the, the eagle is VI, obviously for the Virgin Islands. Now, what's interesting about the Virgin Island flag is this. Originally, the, the flag of the Virgin Islands, uh, or what we know as the Virgin Islands, was a Danish type of flag. It had a, a blue background to it. And then up in the Canton was the, the Danish flag because that area was originally owned by, by the Danes and then and then obviously passed on to the United States. And so it is has really changed in terms of it has done a, a very good job of reflecting the fact that its ownership was passed on. Obviously, we've talked about that it's very unlikely that the Virgin Islands ever become a state, but if they do, they would probably bring that fly with them. So uh, there's an overall view of some state flags. Obviously, like I said, we couldn't do all of them. Um, we tried to kind of stay away from the, the state flags that were blue with the state seal on it. And, and like we said all along, we wanted to give you some idea of some uniqueness, some, some flags that, that represent the culture of a state without using the state seal. Okay, we're gonna take a break. When we come back, we're gonna do weird laws and then we'll wrap up this episode. Hi, I'm Mike Dunleavy, governor of the great state of Alaska, and we're inviting you to come to our great state this summer. If you want to see glaciers, bears, pan for gold, you name it, Alaska is the place. Having one of the highest vaccination rates in the country, our people are safe and you will be too. So come join us and experience the last frontier. Before we get to weird laws, we thought we'd answer a couple questions that have been sent to us based upon some prior episodes. Uh, the first question is, do you think that the United States will ever have a recall for a, a president? Uh, in other countries, this is termed as a vote of no confidence. I don't think this is ever going to occur in the United States. Uh, I'm sure some of this has been uh, spurred on by the fact that the governor of California is under recall. But it, the way the Constitution is established is that the only way to remove a president, we've talked about this, is either through impeachment or through the 25th Amendment, which means he's he's no longer fit to do his, his job. Uh, recalls is, is just would not be a very popular thing, especially in, in the modern world of politics, that where you know, basically at any moment you can vote to uh, have a president rerun for office um, even before he finishes his four years. So I, I just don't see recalls ever, ever coming into effect. And again, you'd have to change, you have to have a constitutional amendment because you would have to fix the constitution where it, it limits the term of the president and says why he can be removed. All right, the second question we got was this, what is your favorite state flag? 
I really don't have a favorite state flag. I guess right now the one that, that I appreciate is is the Georgia state flag, the Magnolia flag, uh, partially probably because it's new, partially because it has a lot of <clears throat> representation to it. But I, I've never sat and thought, oh, that's my, my favorite state flag. Okay. For weird laws today, we go to Florida, and there is a law in Florida that says that it is illegal to fish while you are driving across a bridge. Now, obviously, uh, part of this is just pure out danger. You don't want to be driving a car and trying to fish off a bridge at the same time. Um, it is decided or enforced by a traffic violation. That's what it is, it is a non-criminal act, and basically you get a traffic violation for doing this. However, I thought about this. If you were driving really fast across the bridge and, and trying to fish, it would be a whole new definition of fly fishing. So that's going to wrap up this episode and we'll wrap up our study of state flags. Hopefully you learned a little bit more about the different flags. Again, if you have a question that you'd like to have answered, send it to us or a comment about an episode. We need to thank freesound.com for our music. And as always, make sure you vote because that is the only way democracy works. Thanks for listening.